Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and this week's message is from our series titled Looking Up. Today, we're going to be looking at God's ability to work in our lives through our relationship with Him. We'll be looking at four different passages today, including John chapter 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Matthew chapter 22, and Ephesians chapter 3. So go ahead and grab your Bible, mark those passages, and follow along with us as we get started. Well, good morning. Hi. Hi. You said hi to each other. You want to say hi to me? What's up with that? Oh, hey. Hi there. Um, okay, so this morning we're going to be uh, the, the third week of this series looking at mental health. And what I'm going to do today, we have four passages. John 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Matthew 22, and Ephesians 3. Um, that's on your handout. If you want to mark those passages in your Bible so you can flip to them when we get there or use a smartphone and whatever it is you want to do. But I do encourage you to follow along in the scriptures. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, before we do that, I forgot last service, um, but uh, Ian... Uh, Nakarado, did I say it right? Ian Nakarado has been uh, selected to be a part of the deacon board. And um, we, yeah, yeah, Ian's an awesome guy. Um, and uh, um, what we ask is the same way when we do this with the elder board is that if anybody has any biblical reasons that Ian shouldn't be on the board, that you submit those to us in writing. Um, I forgot to say that at the first service, so if they know something, you're off the hook. Um, but uh, I'm just kidding. They're not going to find anything. As I have worked with Ian over the last, uh, what have we, what has it been, about 18 months, a year, something like that? Um, this is a man who has a, a very level head. Uh, he sees things from different perspectives. Uh, he has the ability to see things from other people's perspective, is what I should say. Um, and he, he just brings a really a level-headed, wise um, approach to things that, uh, that he deals with. And so we're excited to have you be a part of the board. Um, and then uh, if you don't know, the elder board, the, the they're, they're viewed as kind of the, the men that are looking over the spiritual health of the church and looking after the, uh, the spiritual ministry side of things that are going on. And then the deacon board is, they're looking after the sort of the nuts and bolts of the church. What is all the administrative stuff that needs to happen behind the scenes? Um, and so that's what those two different boards do. Um, but anyway, enough of that. You didn't come here to hear about that. Um, what we're going to talk about is uh, God being able. And so this message, um, able being uh, an acronym for um, abide, behold, love, and experience. Okay. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to walk you through these passages and I'm not going to go through every point of the passages, but I, what I want to do is share what these words in the scripture are about. Okay. And so, um, these are all gifts from God so that we can have relationship with him. That's the first thing to understand is that when God calls us to abide, it's a gift. When he calls us to be able to behold his, his person and his work and who he says we are, that is, a, a gift of his grace that he is giving to us. Um, when, he, when he calls us to love him with all of who we are and our neighbor as ourself, he's not calling us to do that in our own strength, but he's actually giving us the love in order to do that. Um, and then when we talk about the experience of knowing God, uh, he is actually a part of our lives. He's not something that's on a page or in a book. He is real and alive and active in our lives. And so that's what we're going to look at in this. These are all gifts of God's relationship with us. And I think the, the way that they play into this, season, this, uh, this series on mental health um, is that the, what we talked about is that God's approach to this is first, 
he is present with you, his person. He is with you. The second is he has given us his word. And so when we go into the scriptures, it's about learning about who he is and who he says we are and how to live in right relationship with him. And then he's also given us his people. And so I encourage you as we go through this, there's going to be a bunch of verses on your handout. I'm not going to go through all of them. I've put those there. I put those there so that you can go through them during the week. Okay. You could look at it and you say, what's God's love about? And you can look up those verses and spend time in God's word and maybe do that with someone else. Okay. Do that with another believer or invite somebody who doesn't know Jesus into understanding God's love as you look at it. Um, but that's why those are there is for you to pick up the Bible again during the week and spend time with God in his word. So, uh, as we look at this, uh, one of the other things is that we realize that um, sometimes people have misunderstandings of who God is and what relationship with, with what, what relationship with him is like, and uh, sometimes that's the church's fault, okay? And so, one of the, there's two types of people that end up leaving the church, and the first one is called the mad ones. Um, and what these people, what happens is they're, they're brought into the church as a result of false promises, okay? So, if you follow Jesus, you'll have a better life. You'll have, uh, you'll, you'll have seasons where uh, he'll, he'll bless you, and everything will be easy, and your circumstances will just be great all of the time. And uh, the prosperity gospel, right? If you follow God, he's going to bless you monetarily, and, and you're just, you, everything in life is going to be great. Um, and then you follow Jesus, and you go, well, everything isn't great. In fact, the last time I read the Bible, he actually promises tribulations for believers. So uh, these promises aren't coming about. And so when these promises don't turn out the way that they were given, uh, these people are told that it's their fault. Okay, and so the reason you're not the reason you're going through a season of difficulty is because you must have upset God, or the reason that you're not experiencing things as fruitfully as you'd like to is because you must have a lack of faith. And so what happens is then these people they uh, they're brought into the church with these false promises. The false promises go unfulfilled, and disappointment turns into anger, and they leave the church. Um, so you know I I can't live up to this. I just keep being told that I'm not good enough. Um, and if I were good enough, then I would be experiencing these promises that, that they say should be there. Um, and so what this person needs is they need to hear that true worship is the free forgiveness of sins because of Christ crucified and by grace as a gift of God and our faith in him apart from our works. Christianity is not you work hard and God blesses you. Christianity is God loves you and he blesses you. Um, and that may come through a season of uh, being on the mountaintop, but it also may come from a season of being in the valley. He will bless you with the valley. He will bless you with the difficulties. And through the difficulties, he'll mold you and change you. And so uh, that's not my church experience. Um, I, I didn't hear promises and go, oh boy, life will be better if I'm, if I'm following Jesus. Um, but this, the next one, this sad one, are people that are brought into the faith through correct teaching and say that, that they're saved by grace through faith. So they hear correct teaching. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Then they hear less and less of the gospel and more and more law encouraging them towards Christian living. And so this was my experience with Christianity. I understood at an early age that I needed a savior and that Jesus was that savior. Um, and so I trusted that he died on the cross for my sins and I trusted that he was raised from the dead. But then I thought from that point forward, it was my job to live the Christian life. It was up to me to meet these standards. And so if you've ever tried that, you know that it's exhausting 
what you end up doing is you just end up feeling frustrated. Some people are good rule keepers. I wasn't one of them. And so I went through a period of probably five years where I said, hey, I tried this rule keeping thing. I'm not very good at it. And so let's try, let's, let's try indulging my flesh and let's just go about living life uh, for what feels good. So I'm going to set the rules aside and I'm going to do what feels good for a period. And I found that to be even worse than trying to keep the rules. And so uh, you're going, neither of these things is bringing me life. I'm not a good rule keeper. And when I try and do it, it's exhausting and I feel beat up. And when I go and indulge my flesh, uh, I just feel disgusting and disgraceful uh, that, I, that I'm living a life that is this way because I know it's not to God's design. And so what do I do? And so the result of, for these people is they're exhausted by the burden of following the law and a failure to live up to Christian standards. So they hear the gospel at first, and then they're burdened with law, and the result is exhaustion from failing to live up to God's law. They leave the church. And so that's, that's probably as close to my Christian experience in, in my early age that I could explain. Um, I really felt exhausted trying to live up to these rules, and so I went and tried and did my own thing for a while, and that was not any better. And then I finally hear this, this teaching that Jesus has fulfilled the law, that Christian living is about repentance and dependence. So I repent from trying to do things my own way. When I'm, when I'm trying to fulfill the law, it's all about my abilities. When I'm indulging my flesh, it's all about what feels good to me. Either way, I'm in control and I'm not actually dependent on God. And so I repent from a lifestyle where I'm dependent on my own abilities and I become dependent on Jesus's work in my place. And so what I, what I heard was that Christian living was not in pursuit of perfect living. Right? God doesn't expect me to be perfect. He doesn't expect that I'll get it right all the time. But he does expect that the blood of his son will cover my errors and that he'll teach me through those times where I, where I make the wrong choices and change me more and more into Jesus. And so I receive, instead of this, this burdening idea of relationship with a rule keeper, what I, now have, what I now have is a father and a friend who walks with me through whatever I'm going through. And it's totally different. And so I don't know if you identify with either of those, um, if you felt the, uh, the anger of unfulfilled promises that somebody said would happen if you followed Jesus, or if you felt the sadness and exhaustion and disappointment of trying to be um, a rule keeper, a saved rule keeper. But what I want to do today is show you what relationship with God is really about from the scriptures. And so that's what I'll do uh, with, these, with these four ideas of abiding, beholding, loving, and experiencing God's uh, presence with us. Before we do that, let me pray. So Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to be together. We thank you that uh, you haven't made yourself a secret, um, but instead you have revealed yourself to us. Uh, you have shown us who you are through the scriptures and uh, through your person and work, through the advent, the, uh, the, the bringing about of yourself in the person of Jesus so that we could see you, uh, we could understand your character and your love for us, we could understand your holiness and your justice. And uh, God, now you invite us into deep and meaningful relationship with you, not of our own ability and strength, but of your grace and goodness. And so um, I pray that we leave without any burden of relationship with you, but an excitement about the fact that you are with us and a longing to, uh, a longing to practice your presence, that you are here with us. It's not a burden. It's a joy to be with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So John chapter 15, and what's going on in these verses is this is the night before Jesus is betrayed. Um, they've, uh, they've taken the Last Supper, and now he's talking with his guys about the, the things that they want. he wants them to know before he is betrayed and crucified. And so he goes through several different things, but one of the things he talks about is this abiding. And so in John 15, he says, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. And what Jesus has done throughout his ministry is he has given pictures to the people, parables and stories so that they can understand what is going on with the kingdom of God. And so he says, I am the vine, my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. So he's saying, I'm the vine and branches grow off of me and the branches that do grow off of me, my father actually brings about circumstances in their life that prunes them so that they can produce more fruit. Um, He says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. And if you were going to underline a part of this, I would would look at that part there in verse 4. He says, remain in me and I in you. He's saying that I'm going to be with you. Uh, There's definitely action of our will and things that he wants us to understand. But he is the one who's initiating the relationship. He says, I'm in you. If you've trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and that he uh, paid the, off the, that debt once and for all and that he was raised from the dead, he's, he's in you. He's with you always. He says, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I'm the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. And boy, there's a line for you. When I was trying to uh, fulfill the rules in my own strength, I couldn't do it. I wasn't abiding. I wasn't connected to the vine. It was all about my performance. And then when I was out doing whatever my flesh wanted to do, I was ignoring the fact that God was with me. And so I was producing nothing. Uh, in, uh, in, Galatia, or in Ephesians, he talks about um, being, being filled with the Spirit, being by walking by the Spirit. And, and the life apart from walking in the Spirit, he calls it dissipation. It's a waste of life. And so when I was trying to fulfill the law in my own strength, it was a waste of life. When I was trying to indulge my flesh and see if the world could make me happy, it was a waste of life. I could produce nothing. I could do nothing because I wasn't connected to the vine. Verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. He's saying, if you're abiding in me, you're going to ask for the things I already want to give, and I'll grant them. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And so he says, what it's about with me is it's about being connected to me. Jesus is saying, remain connected to me, and you're going to live a different lifestyle. Abiding produces Christ-like thinking, speech, and behavior. And that word abide or remain in, the, in this text means to, to stay, persist, to continue with, or to, the idea is to stay with Christ. Um, and w- as we look at this, it's actually the fulfillment of God's promises to dwell with his obedient covenant people. Uh, the surrounding context of John chapter 15 points to us, points us to the Holy Spirit as God's presence in all those who place faith in Jesus. So one of the promises of the scriptures is that when you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you, you trust that God raised him from the dead, the Holy Spirit indwells you right then and there and God's presence resides with you. 
Okay. Now, if you were to look at the Jewish law and the, the circumstances around it, particularly if you were to take a look at like the temple or the tabernacle, um, they understood that to be the place of God's special presence among them. Okay. And there was a fence around it. And then there was the holy place in the meeting tent. And there was the holy of holies. And they had all these rituals that were about being clean so that you could enter into God's presence. You didn't walk through that gate with sin. You didn't walk through, you didn't, you, you came in there with a clean conscience, with a desire to be one with God. And there was a sacrifice that took place so that you could be cleansed and made one with God. It was done away with. Okay. And so what he's saying in these verses, he says, I'm going to dwell with you. They would have been like, beg your pardon. We have sin. It's an issue. How are you going to dwell with us? How are you going to make me your tabernacle? How am I going to become your temple? You're going to dwell in me? I can't, I can't even go into the tabernacle unless, or the temple unless I've dealt with sin. And you're going to dwell in me. What does this mean? And what he says there in verse 4, or verse 3, he says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. I have cleansed you. That's what he's saying. He's saying if you've trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection, then you're clean, and now the Spirit of God can dwell in you because there is no, there is no sin issue. The sin issue is dealt with, so you can become his temple. You can become his tabernacle, and he can abide with you. And that's a glorious thing for us to think about, right? For us to recognize that Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all of my sinfulness, from every wrong act that I've ever done in the past, from every wrong act that I'll ever do in the future, from my rebellious nature, all of those things, I'm clean. And I can actually be the place where God dwells. The, the Jewish people of the Old Testament, they would have said, there's no way God could be the place where I dwell. There's too much sin in me. And Jesus is saying, not anymore. I have cleansed you, and you are my dwelling place. Abide in me. Know that that's who you are. Know that you're one who has been righteous and holy and cleansed. Know that while you may sin, it's, 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 it's conquered, it's defeated. The price is paid. So you abide in that. You remain in Jesus. You remain in the truth that he has cleansed you. You remain in the truth that he is in you, that he is with you. And one of the things that you run into when you talk about anxiety or depression is you, you go, you know, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe, maybe these flaws that I see in myself prevent me from moving forward or maybe they keep God from being with me. And he says, no, I've cleansed you. I know your flaws, I understand your flaws, but I paid for those, and I've made you mine, and so now I'm going to dwell in you. So remain in me, stay in that place of safety and security. So that's what abiding is about, and the next word in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is behold. And as you flip over there to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, as, we, as we look at this, um, what Paul is doing is he's describing the new covenant ministry. He's describing to people who they are under the terms of the new covenant. Okay, and so he's going to talk about the old covenant as something that brought death and condemnation. He's going to talk about the new covenant as something that brings uh, life and righteousness. Okay, and so that's what he's talking about as he goes through this. The other imagery that he's going to use is um, when Moses would go up onto Mount Sinai and interact with 
with God. So he'd go up, he'd be in God's presence, he'd talk to God, he'd act as a priest on behalf of the people and plead on behalf of the people. And then he would receive truth uh, from Moses and then he would carry that down. Well, when Moses came down off the mountain, it said that his face shined with God's glory. At first, Moses doesn't realize this and then he realizes that his face is shining with God's glory. What would happen is as he was out of God's presence, the glory would fade. And so Moses would put a veil over his face so that people wouldn't see that the glory was fading. But it was. It was fading. He'd be in God's presence. He'd behold God. And then the glory would fade. And what he's going to share with us is that the glory that we have under the terms of the new covenant is unfading. Okay? So that's what these verses are about. And it says in verse 7, Now, if the ministry that brought death, so that's the ministry of the Mosaic law, chiseled in letters on stones, came with glory, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So he's saying the, the ministry of us, God's presence always being with us, is more glorious. For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. Uh, so so he's, he's sharing there that the law, when you put yourself under law, it doesn't bring life. It actually brings condemnation. And that is certainly what I felt when I tried to live up to the rules. I didn't feel victory. I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere. I just felt condemnation because that's the job of the law to show us that we can't keep it and that we need a savior. Verse 10, in fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. He's saying that the ministry that Jesus had is so much greater than the ministry that Moses had, uh, and it surpasses it in a manner in which, uh, if you were to look at, if you were to look at Jesus's ministry and then look at Moses's ministry, you would say, "I can't hardly even see Moses," um, because Jesus' ministry is so great. And that's what John opens his gospel with. He says that law came through Jesus, but grace and truth, or law came through Moses, but grace and truth was realized in Jesus Christ. And so that's the ministry that is being drawn out here, the, the difference between that of law and that of grace. Verse 11, for if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. So Moses would hide it so that they wouldn't see that the glory was fading. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only by Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And so what's he talking about? He's talking about when you put yourself under a system of rules, you might say, hey, I did really well with this system of rules today, uh, but then this afternoon, boy, did I blow it. So it felt glorious for a while, but then I blew it again. You may even go a couple days on end where you feel like, man, I've really got this together. I'm, I'm keeping my rules. And this is what the Pharisees did, right? So there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. And what they did is they would say, well, let's build some more laws around those laws and then some more laws around those laws. And the law just keeps growing and growing so that they won't break the initial law. And they reach a point where they go, boy, we're doing pretty good with this. But then a few days later, they break it again. And if you're really being honest with yourself, you know that when you put yourself under law, you break it over and over again all day long. Okay, And so he's saying that the glory is fading. Even if you keep the rules for a little while, you're going to break them and the glory disappears. And so when you put yourself under a law, a rule-based system, you might look good for a little while, but eventually you'll recognize that you're not and you'll either practice hypocrisy or you'll be honest with people and say, I'm not living up to the standards that I try and keep. 
And so what he's saying is that this new ministry that Jesus gives, uh, verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the Lord is, there is freedom. So now he's drawing out that you're free from trying to keep the law. You're freed from that because Jesus has kept the law for you. He's actually fulfilled the commands of the law and the prophets so that you could be righteous and holy. Uh, The point of the law was actually to lead you to the fact that you needed a savior. And now Jesus has fulfilled the need of a savior. And so he's giving you freedom from the law, but he's also giving you freedom from indulging your flesh. You're either captive to the law and chained to it, or you're chained to your flesh trying to indulge it. And he says he's cutting off the chains to both of those things so that you can have freedom. And what is this freedom? What's the point of it? Verse 18, and we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. And so what's the point of all this? Beholding brings transformation. Uh, he, he says there that we all with unveiled faces looking as in a mirror, and that word looking in the, in the, in the Christian standard Bible is beholding as well. Uh, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. And so beholding brings transformation. And this means the idea behind behold is to gaze as in a mirror, to reflect, to contemplate. And so you're contemplating who God is. You're contemplating who God says you are. The verb tenses actually point the reader to behold Jesus's glory in a manner that is continuous and free from interruption. When I first read that, I thought, good luck. Right? There's always something distracting us. There's always something that kind of seems to get in the way of us beholding God's glory and who he says he is and who he says we are. And, and yet that's what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to a relationship where we're constantly beholding him and his glory. We're constantly understanding who he says we are and how he wants to have relationship with us. When we talk about uh, spiritual warfare or you talk about mental health, I think spiritual warfare and mental health often often go together. Um, And one of the lies that Satan loves to do, he loves to do two main lies. The first one is to lie about the character of God. He'll tell you that God is someone that he's not, that he he is a rule keeper. Uh, or, Or that he's pretty lax with the rules and you can do whatever you want. You know, he's either so tough on you uh, with these rules that he just beats you down with them, or he's so lazy about it, just go ahead and indulge your flesh. And we have a tendency to hear those lies and go, boy, I better keep the rules. Or he's gracious, I'll do whatever I want. And you end up in these two places. And what he says is there's freedom from both of those in the new covenant. And so he's pointing us to behold to take in who God is and the relationship that he wants with us continuously without interruption. Don't let anything get in the way of that. And as you came in today, uh, there, there's, there's a couple approaches to that. You can say, hey, I'm going to take this thing that's distracting me and I'm going to set it to the side and deal with it later. What I would encourage you to do when you come to church is carry that thing in here and say, God, I'm giving it to you. I want you to take this distraction and point my eyes back to you. Now, when we talk about transformation, the transformation of of Christ followers described in the New Testament is instant, progressive, spiritual, mental, emotional, moral, physical, and final. So the, the spiritual transformation or the transformation that we go to is instant. When you are in Jesus Christ, he says, right now, at the moment of belief, you have been taken out of darkness and into light. You were a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to righteousness. You were in Adam. Now you're in Christ. And all of these positional truths that come from the scripture are true of you right now. That's who you you are. God doesn't see you as broken. He sees you as righteous. He doesn't see you as uh, somebody who could never enter into the throne room. He sees you as clean, right? You're not dirty. You're clean. And so those things are true of you right now because of the work of Christ. It's instant. Uh, 
but it's also progressive because while you hear that, it's instant. You might say, well, I don't feel like those things are true of me. Um, God may say they're true, but how do I live them out? And so this is where the rubber meets the road. And in Christianity, you begin to take these truths that God says and they, they, in, they take over your mind, they make their way into your mind, and then they move from your mind to your heart. And that's what this transformation is about in a progressive sense. Day by day, more and more, you're transformed into the image of Jesus. God says all these things are true of you right now. Like he says, right now, you're seated in the heavenly places with Christ. I'm not 100% sure what that means. But apparently, he has a special position with me, with, with his son. Like he views me as with him right now. Um, that, that's incredible. So it's instant, it's progressive, it's spiritual. The truths of the scripture, they reveal that b before we trust in Jesus, we're spiritually dead. We cannot understand spiritual things. We don't even have the ability to comprehend what the scriptures are about until the spirit of God indwells us and he alivens our spirit. He quickens our spirit. And now we understand him and his word in a way that we never could have before. We become spiritually alive. We were, we were spiritually dead before Christ and we become spiritually alive in him. There's a mental transformation. And we've seen this as we've gone through the series that we've developed ruts of thinking in our lives. And what, what God teaches us to do is to fill in the ruts in our mind with his thoughts. We, we take the old thoughts and the old ways that we used to live, these ruts that existed, and we recognize that they're wrong and we fill them in with truth. And so we have a, a mental transformation that is, that is happening and is ongoing. There's, an, there's a, an emotional transformation as well. When you become a Christian and you're in Christ, you recognize that you can process your emotions differently. You can handle anger and anxiety and sadness and all these things that we would, we would experience, whether you're up high or down low. You can experience these things with God and you actually handle your emotions in a different way. We, we, all, we have a tendency to think about emotions in a negative light because emotions can be destructive, right? You can feel angry and do something destructive or you can feel angry and hand it to God and allow him to show you how the anger should actually be directed. There are things that God gets angry about. You can be a Christian and be angry. Um, but the question is, how do you process that anger with him rather than apart from him? If you process anger with him, it'll be something that's constructive. If you process anger without him, it'll be something that's destructive. It's just the, he causes us to deal with these things that way. And you could say the same thing about sadness. You process sadness without him, it'll be destructive. You process sadness with him, it'll be constructive. And you fill in the blank with the emotion. And so he has the ability to take something that when we, when we go through it on our own, it tears us apart. When we go through it with him, it actually builds us up. And so we have an emotional transformation that happens. There's a moral transformation. If your morals, uh, if, you're, if you say, I'm a Christian and have been for some time, and my morals are the same as they were before I knew Christ, I would encourage you to pay attention. Um, because God always shows us the places where our morality does not match with his. And so we must conform what we believe about right and wrong to what he says, not the other way around. There should be a moral transformation of our lives where we begin to handle everything that we do in a different way. We handle our finances differently. We handle our sexuality differently. We handle, uh, we handle stewardship. We handle all these things that God puts in front of us. We handle them differently than we did before because his morality is right and mine is wrong and I adjust to his. 
there's a physical transformation that is promised. Um, when, when Christ returns, um, we receive new bodies. Uh, when, when, we, when we die or when Christ returns, we receive new bodies. And these ones that are falling apart and breaking um, and our knees creak and all these different things. But even more than that, rather than the phys- just that physiological side of it, the sin that indwells us is taken away. So the new body that we will indwell at some point in time will not have sin in it. We won't have the draw to sin that we currently do. And so he promises that. And then this transformation of the New Testament is final. Uh, He talks about in Revelation chapter 21, where there's a place where there's no crying, no sin, no death. All these things are done away with. And so there's a final transformation, not just of us, but of the entire world, uh, the new heavens and the new earth where where we are promised we will inhabit. There's that transformation as well. And so these are things that you should behold. As you think about this transformation, I mean, those passages there will walk you through the instant progressive spiritual, mental, emotional, moral, physical, and final transformation that God promises. Those are things that we have to behold and take into our minds, and then we want them to travel from our minds to our hearts so that we live differently. So that's what beholding is about. We take a look at what God says to be true, who he is and what he says about us, and we behold that until it captures our minds and our hearts so that we live differently. And that's of his grace. Uh, he, he has chosen out of his goodness and his kindness to reveal himself to us, okay? Now, uh, there's a song from Psalm 42 that Micah and Kylie are going to play in just a moment. And uh, last week, I tried to reference this psalm, but I said 46. So if you read Psalm 46 last week, good for you. Um, I apologize. Um, But Psalm 42, what's going on is the psalmist actually says that he is in a state of depression. Um, He he is depressed. Um, And he talks about uh, how just the circumstances of his life are weighing on him. And then what he talks about is God's glory. And what this song does is it paraphrases the psalm. And so I encourage you to just take in these lyrics. Um, They're they're pretty, uh, I think they, they guide us to behold. So the, the line that really stands out to me in that song is he says, when I behold your glory, you so faithfully renew. And so that's the idea is that as we behold God's glory and who he is and what he says to be true, it changes, the, changes us, changes the way we are and the way that we approach life. And so uh, we, have, we have these relationship uh, gifts of abiding and beholding. The next one is God's love in Matthew chapter 22. And so as, as you're in Matthew chapter 22, you have a, a lawyer, um, and this is a point in Jesus's ministry where uh, a Pharisee tests him, a religious lawyer tests him, and then a Sadducee tests him. And in all cases, what they're doing is they're trying to get him to either uh, show that his authority doesn't come from God, that his, his, uh, his ministry is, is human-based, which would then say he doesn't have any power, or they're trying to get him to do something that would cause them to say that he was blaspheming, that he was equal to God. And so that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to trick him into saying something that they can capture him for. And in verse 36 of Matthew 22, uh, this lawyer asks, he says, teacher or rabbi, which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Then he says, all the law and prophets depend on these two commands. And so when he references the law and the prophets, he's essentially saying all of the Old Testament depends on these two commands. Um, and so uh, what, he's, what he's doing here is he's showing him that, uh, that we are to love God with all of who we are. And then as we're filled with God's love, as we receive from him, we're then able to love our neighbor as ourself. It frees us. As we're in a right relationship with God, it then frees us to be in a right relationship with others. And this word love is the word agape. So the Greeks, they had five different words for love. Um, we have one word for love. So you can say in the same sentence, I love my wife and I love pizza. Um, I hope one of those is more true than the other. Um, but so, so in English, the word becomes almost kind of useless. But for the Greeks, they had these five different words. Um, and this word agape means to cherish, to take pleasure in, or to prove one's love. And the Greek word was adapted and redefined by the church to explain God's love for humanity in Christ. And so as we look at God's love, it is unconditional, self-sacrificial, understanding, and endless. It is unconditional. There is nothing that you could do for God to love you more, and there is nothing that you could do for God to love you less. He loves you. He just loves you. Uh, he loves you so much uh, that he is self-sacrificial about it. He sent his only son, the only begotten son, went to the cross to pay for the consequences of sin so that you could be freed from it and not perish, but instead have eternal life. That's how much God loves you, that he would sacrifice his only begotten son on my behalf, on your behalf, so that the consequences of sin could be dealt with. He's self-sacrificial. His love is understanding. Uh, one of the things that I think we have a tendency to overlook is that God knows knows your pain. He understands your temptation. He understands your anxiety. In fact, if you want to understand how much Jesus knows your anxiety, read about him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was so anxious about what was coming his way that he actually sweat blood, uh, which is a physical condition of anxiety that exists. You could do it. You could be that anxious. Jesus was that anxious about what was coming. He knows your pain. He knows your anxiety. He understands your temptation. And yet through all of it, he was sinless. And because he was sinless, uh, not only does he understand, but he was able to then pay the consequences of our sin. So his love is also, uh, not only is it understanding, but it's endless. Uh, there is no limit to his love. There is no point at which he says, enough is enough. I can't take this anymore. Um, there are points in time where he judges. And when you see those points in time within the scripture where God judges a group of people or like the entire world with the flood, the reason that he does it is actually from his love. And when people reach a point that they're doing so much harm to each other, judgment is needed. And that's where he steps in. He sees a group of people or the entire world doing so much harm to each other that he steps in and stops it. And so it's actually an act of his love that he judges but his love is endless. It's motivated to, to save, secure, and sanctify his beloved. Uh, this is amazing that his, his love is motivated to save you, to, re to save you from the consequences of sin, uh, which, are, which are death, which is eternal separation from him and a place of torment that Jesus calls the gnashing of teeth. It is a horrible place, and he longs to save you from it. He not only longs to save you from the end judgment, but he longs to save you from the consequences of sin in your life right now. And by securing you into to his family. He wants to then sanctify you. He wants to bring you into his household and cause you to be a different person. You, you used to be in Adam. He says, now you're in Christ. He used to, you used to be a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to righteousness. You used to 
to be a rebel. Now you're my ambassador. You used to have a destination that was holy and completely apart from me. Now you have a final destination that is a co-heir with my son. I'm bringing you into my family. I'm securing you within, within my household. And there's nothing that you can do that will cause me to kick you out. Uh, you're, you're my sheep and you're in my hand. And no one, Jesus says, and no one takes you from my hand. You're mine. And you're in my household and you're secure. And then I want to sanctify you. I actually want to cause you to be more and more like Jesus. This transformation that we talked about in beholding. I'm going to cause you to live a holy and set apart lifestyle. I'm going to cause you to be different from the world around you because you're in relationship with me. And this is all an act of his love. And his love is an action. Not, his, not uh, an action of his will, not just fickle feelings. Uh, God's love is an action of his will. He says, I'm coming for you and I love you. This isn't just a feeling that I have today. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and feel differently. My love for you is unchanging. I, I want you. I care about you. And nothing will stop me from doing so. Further, God's love is undeserved and given in spite of disappointment in and rejection by those he loves. Um, we, we don't earn God's love. Um, he doesn't wake up one day and say, now you're good enough, I'll love you. He just loves you. In fact, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, right? While we were broken and needy, while we were rebellious and fighting against him. He loves us and he saves us. It's given in spite of disappointment in and rejection by those he loves. I mean, if you think about... Um, the scriptures actually reveal that we can grieve God, um, that we can live in a manner that causes him to feel pain. Um, and you can imagine if you, maybe we can, maybe we can't, but, but there's, this, there's this thing that you're active in participating in creation. I think it's why actually God allows us to be a part of procreation. Because when you have a child, you understand how much you love you understand how much you would do anything for this child. Uh, there is no limit to your love. You just love them. Um, and I think he invites us into procreation so that we can understand his love in a different level. You just love them. And the loss of them would be so damaging to you. And if they were to reject you, if they were to push, push you away and say, I don't want anything to do with you for the rest of my life, the pain would be unbearable. And that's exactly what we've done to him, to a man. We've all done it. And so in spite of that disappointment and rejection, he says, no, I want you. I'm coming for you. I'll have you. And so that's God's agape love, his one-of-a-kind, unconditional, self-sacrificial, understanding, endless love. Uh, that's what he comes with to us with. And what he's saying in this is he, he's saying, I want you to love as my vessel. I want you to love as God's vessel. So as I pour out this love on you, I want you to then pour that love out to others. I want you to return my love to me as, as God has first loved us. We love him. And then if we are truly in Christ, he says, beloved, let us love one another for God is love. If God's love is in us, then we will be extending it to others. And so that's what this is all about. And so he invites us into relationship through abiding, beholding, by returning his love. 
and extending it to others. And the last one here in Ephesians 3 is to experience God's presence, peace, and power. I know presence, peace, and power didn't make your handout, but that's, that's what he's inviting us into. And so in these verses in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is actually praying a prayer for the believers in Ephesus. He wants them to know God's love. And so he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's acknowledging that God is the creator of all. I pray that he might grant you according to the rich of his, riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. That your inner man would be re renewed and empowered. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. And there's this idea that it's just big. And to know Christ's love that surpasses all knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power of his works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever. Amen. That last line, he's able to do beyond and above and beyond all that we ask or could even think. <laughs> God has you in his in mind so much that he, he even thinks thoughts about the, the goodness and direction of your life that you couldn't even come up with. But the word knowledge shows up there in verse 19, to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And so there's two Greek words that are used in that same sentence. The first one for know God's love is gnosko, and that's to make the acquaintance of, to ascertain, to find out, to comprehend. Uh, the word gnosis, which is used for knowledge, is what is known. It's awareness of facts and the ability to call those facts to, to mind. Uh, the, the first type of know, gnosko, is, is to experience those facts as they are in Incorporated into reality. It's moving complex ideas and truth from vague to concrete as they travel from the head to the heart. Okay? So he's saying, I want you to know God's love. Um, not be able to say what chapter and verse it's in, but to know it. Not to be able to say, there's this book that I read, and in it, it talks about, but for you to say, there's this life that I live, and there's this God that's present with me, and he loves me this way. His presence is with me every day. Each day when I rise, I know that he is with me and he gives me a song to sing to him and I, and I recognize him for who he is and I worship that he's with me and that his presence is traveling with me as I go throughout this day. And as I approach my day and my wife and my kids and my job and my neighbors, I know that God is with me and because he's with me, he's filling me up so that I would become a vessel of his love, that I could extend his love to other people, that I would not just know about his love, but that I would know it, right? It's like the difference between being able to say uh, human knowledge as we understand what, what molecules and chromosomes and atoms and all these things are, but we don't know how they came into being. There is one who does, but we know, we know they exist, but, and we might know some things about them, but I can't control them. What God does for us with his love is he says, this is going to travel from your head knowledge to your heart. This isn't going to be something that you're able to recount and give the right Sunday school answer, but you're going to say, I know the right Sunday school answer, and I've lived it. 
This experiential knowledge is explained in the scripture by thinkers. You can find it in the Proverbs, uh, psalmists, prophets, historians, apostles, church leaders, and Jesus himself talks about this experiential knowledge of God's love. His presence is with us. He is in us. His peace and power available to us at all times. It's not something that we just understand and can recount. It's something that we've experienced and live. And so what he's inviting us into is this kind of relationship where we're abiding in him and Christ-like thinking, speech, and behavior are flowing out of us as we remain close to him. We're beholding who he, who he says he is and what he says about us, and that brings transformation in us. Um, we're, we're living as, as vessels of God's love. As his love is given to us, we then it, it's, it's captured inside of us and then poured out to others around us and returned to God as we thank him for who he is and what he's done. And as you live this kind of life, you experience God's presence, peace, and power. It's not something far off or distant, but it's something that you've lived. You know it. You can share with others what it is to be in God's presence, to have him direct your path, to have him give, him give you wisdom that you wouldn't have on your own, to have him give you peace with your children that you wouldn't have on your own, to have him give you kindness to those who harm you that you wouldn't have on your own. You know this love. You know his presence, his power, and his provision. And so that's the relationship that he's inviting us into. And so as you look at applying this to your life, uh, I won't go through all the questions on the handout, but the, the final statement there is Christianity is not a spectator sport. Um, Jesus is to be pursued as a response of his love for you. And it's not something that you watch, it's something that you do. It's not something that you read about, it, but it's someone that you know. And his name is Jesus. Much like physical health, spiritual health does not come from watching others. You won't become physically strong by watching others work out. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> my, my, uh, my, my oldest son shot a, shot a deer yesterday, and it was, um, it was like two miles hauling out this 170-pound animal. And I got blisters on the back of my feet, and my, my knee was given out. If I could get strong by watching people, I would have. Um, <laughs> Kylie told me this week that all of my illustrations either come from sports or hunting. Um, maybe I'll take up some sewing at some point in time. I don't know. <laughs> That's not what she meant. Um, but just as you won't become physically strong by watching others work out, likewise, you won't become spiritually strong without exercising relationship with God as you are in his word and with his family. Um, it's, there's no shortcut. There's no easy road out. You say, God, you love me. And because you love me, I'm going to return that love by spending time with you, by putting you first, by abiding in you, by beholding who you are and who you say I am, by extending your love to others as you've given it to me. And God, I pray that today and every day I could experience your life in me. I thank you that I have, and I look forward to continuing to do so. Let me pray. Father, we do. We are so thankful that you are with us. And we are so thankful that your son Jesus had, had gone, has gone to the cross to pay for the consequences of sin once and for all. I am free from the penalty of sin. I am free from the power of sin in my life as the Spirit gives me life and causes me to conquer this sin. Uh, I, I don't live under a set of rules and laws, God, and I don't live for my flesh, but instead I live in this place of freedom where you are leading me and guiding me and giving me life.
I pray that I would abide in you, that, that as you abide in me and you remain in me, that your words would be the words that come out of my lips, that your thoughts would be the thoughts that happen in my brain, uh, that your emotions would be the ones that I express to others and that I would care as you care. And God, I pray that you teach me to behold you each and every day, your goodness and your glory, your kindness, your majesty, your mercy, uh, your, your grace, your love, uh, that you would just show me these things day in and day out and that you would remind me who you say that I am, uh, not a broken sinner, but a a raised up holy one who is indwelt by the spirit to live a meaningful and powerful life and God that as your love fills me that I would extend it to my wife and to my children uh, to my family to my neighbors to this world around me God may I be a vessel of your love and may I experience day in and day out your presence your power and your provision pray this in Jesus name Thanks for tuning in today. We hope this message brought hope and positive steps that you can take towards seeking God and knowing His peace. If you would like prayer or support, you can text us or call us at 775-984-8787. Next week, we will talk about God's desire to walk with you through any challenge that you may face. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.